0: Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class conscious perspective and to build.
1: We already lost the Soviet Union and we can't do that again. Mm. And I had a personal struggle. I struggled with my comrades in the United States. Mm. And I said, I need to stay because I have something I need to teach. Mm. and for my background and my experience and my knowledge and then I stayed and then I stayed in China
0: Today we have with us uh, Mark Levine, uh, welcome Mark. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. And this is uh, our first in-person interview actually for the MTT podcast. Okay. So usually good. It's online, I'm usually honored. It's digital. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's a privileged, privileged guest to have you uh, as our first live interview. Um, today, obviously we're going to be talking about your story, mm-hmm. uh, where you're from and uh, what you've been doing, particularly in China. Um, okay. So you're uh, right now a professor at one of the universities in Beijing.
1: Uh, yeah, I teach at a university called Minzu University of China. Mm-hmm. I've been there for thirteen years mm-hmm. out of my fifteen years in China. Mm-hmm. I teach in the English department. I'm actually a sociologist, mm-hmm. but I came here. And Minzu University, for anybody not familiar with it, is one of the. It's the major nationalities school. Seventy percent of our students are Chinese ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. And it's the only school in the country that has students from all 56 Chinese ethnic groups and faculty from all 56 Chinese ethnic groups. Wow. So it's a, a very unusual, extraordinary place where you can go and uh, without much effort, you can learn not about Chinese culture, but the mm-hmm. diversity of Chinese cultures right. and how they fit together and work together and cooperate together. Yeah.
0: And do they teach, uh, I mean, obviously 56 minorities, uh, I assume most of them have their own language?
1: So many of them do. So uh, there's a special school of Tibetan studies. Uh, most of the students who study there are Tibetan, but I have a few uh, few students I know mm-hmm. who are not Tibetan. Uh, one is a woman from Australia, mm-hmm. uh, somebody else who is from another part of China, who mm-hmm. is uh, Han Chinese, mm-hmm. and she studies there that... Uh, and you can study Mongolian. You can study Uyghur language and wow. culture, Kazakh language and culture, uh, the Dai language right. from southern China, from Yunnan province, and uh, some other languages. Not all minorities currently have yeah. um, their own language. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then the, the number one Specialty. Chinese universities have specialties. And the main specialty here is ethnic studies, uh-huh. ethnology. Okay. But the uh, ethnicity part runs through many parts of the university. So everybody studies about Chinese ethnology, Mm -hmm. ethnic studies, no matter what you're majoring in. You have courses in that to learn about the other nationalities in China. Mm -hmm. But in the art school, Mm -hmm. you can study Western oil painting, but the specialty is Chinese minority art. You can study Western opera or classical piano and violin in the music school, but the specialty are Chinese minority instruments or Chinese minority singing. Same thing in the dance school. You could study ballet, Western ballet, but the specialty specialty is is Chinese minority minority dance. Um, In the law school, you can study international law, corporate law, Hmm. criminal law, but... You can also study the law of Chinese minority areas, and, and this so is on.
0: Beijing Min, Minzhou University. Minzu. Minzu. Minzu,
1: Minzu. Minzu means nationalities. Mm, nationalities, and there are similar schools in other parts of China, mm-hmm. but they generally um, some are run by the national government, some are by the provincial government, and the significant difference is that those tend to be more regionally focused, so they don't necessarily have students from all fifty-six. Ethnic groups. It specializes based on who are the primary minorities within those areas. I see, fascinating.
0: So, yeah, obviously you're an American. um, Yeah. And where in the states are you from? And uh, yeah, I
1: I was born and raised in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. spent uh, 22 years there until I went to Ohio Mm -hmm. to go. Uh, I got a master's and Ph.D. at a university in Ohio. What was the I, Ph.D.? In? I'm a sociologist. Sociologist, okay. And my study was on the, my research was on the rise of the Nazi party in the mm. 1930 parliamentary election. And I, while I was finishing my dissertation, I was teaching in upstate New York, the capital New York, and a University, uh, State University of New York at Albany and while I was working on my doctoral dissertation, I became more and more uncomfortable because I looked around. Now, my family is Jewish. Mm-hmm. My, I, I was part of a generation of young Jewish Americans, particularly in Los Angeles, who, when your family would talk about religion, you'd say, no, nah. no. This is, I'm an American. I'm in right. the United States right. now. Right. This has nothing to do should deal with, you know, and the Nazis are, yeah, the Nazis are this, but the Nazis are gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, then later, I guess when I was about 15, I had an aunt, my father's sister, and she married a man who was a, a survivor of Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And he had his number tattooed on his arm, wow. and he would tell stories about being in Auschwitz. And Jesus. his parents and aunts, and all of his aunts and uncles were killed. Wow. His siblings were Uh, I think all of them lived. But uh, he'd come to the United States, so this added another dimension. But then as I was researching my doctoral dissertation, Mm. my my focus was on the elections and uh, um, the Nazi party seizing, uh, gaining power through Mm. parliamentary process, Mm -hmm. right, of elections. (laughs) But um, I obviously had to study more about fascism and what fascism was mm. Mm. And as I'm studying, I'm looking around and I'm or begin to, I come to realize through my study that fascism that the fundamental component of fascism was economics right. Right, that everything else is, you know, maybe it's there, maybe it's not, maybe it's jackboots and swastikas, and maybe it's not, but it doesn't need to be. It involves uh, it involves the government uh, assisting capital in destroying the working class.
0: Yep. Oh, one second.
1: It's... Origin in okay. economics. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, so as I'm writing, I'm learning more about fascism, and I come to understand that all of the uh, uh, all of the decorations we can call them uh were not the hallmark of what fascism was about that fascism was about uh the government assistance in terms of transferring wealth whatever whatever um the working class had and giving it straight to the uh the capitalists Mm. all right and as i'm looking around me I say, oh, my God, look what's happening here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. That was a significant realization. This was the mid-1970s. Right, right. And I saw this occurring in many ways. Mm -hmm. Actually, I was teaching at a university in upstate New York in the capital. And at the time, New York City was threatening to go bankrupt. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And if New York City goes bankrupt, then New York State goes bankrupt. Mm -hmm. So... Uh what happened was the um, government uh, hired a man, his name was Felix Rohatton, and he was uh, an employee of Chase Manhattan Bank. The chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank was a man named David Rockefeller, who was the brother of Nelson Rockefeller and a son of John D. Rockefeller. Right. And what did they hire Felix Rohatton to do? to develop an austerity plan. Ah, yes. What are you going to cut? Mm-hmm. So, Nelson Rockefeller, when he was governor, invested a lot of money, government money, into um, into education and welfare. All right? That's another story of why those were mm-hmm. prioritized. Mm-hmm. But, so that's what they cut. They um, They... Uh, prioritized, right, in terms of the education mm-hmm. they dealt with at the university level, mm-hmm. right? They, um, my university was significantly affected. Mm-hmm. They closed entire programs. Mm. They fired tenured professors. I didn't even know that that was possible unless they did something immoral. No, they just said, we don't have the money. We don't have to keep that right. anymore. So I was at the bottom of my... Mm. Um, the school in the university. I was the most recent hired, mm. and therefore, right latest hired, so, yeah. soonest yeah. fired. Yeah. So Not as a result, I lost job. my job. I hadn't done anything wrong. I was right. fine. Mm-hmm. My uh-huh. students appreciated my teaching. Mm-hmm. I had no problems with my colleagues, but they said that's it. Right, there's no place for you anymore. Okay. So at that point, I made a decision. I had already been thinking about it that maybe the academic world isn't for me. So I was married at the time and I had a young son and we traveled back to California, mm-hmm. tra- driving through the country. Um, instead of the 3,000 miles of what a straight drive would, would be, we spent more like four, four and a half thousand mm-hmm. and driving all over. And everywhere we went, uh, we looked for organizations to learn to organize.
0: Mm. As so, in, or and as we didn't know
1: exactly what that meant. Right. right. So we stopped in tenants' unions. You know, you see all of the media coverage today about uh, people being killed by police. Well, there, there were various places that we stopped in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and other places, where there were big campaigns of people organizing about this person who was killed by the police and that person who was killed by the police, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so on. And there was something not quite right about or incomplete about every place. We went to tenants, unions, all kinds of mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. And then finally we ended up back in California, and at that point decided, okay, we're not going back. We're going to stay, and now we have to figure out where we're going to go. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, the lowest form of welfare was a program called, in California, there's a program called general assistance. Mm-hmm. And in some counties, general assistance was a bus ticket out of the county. Jeez. In other cases, it was, you know, $100 a month, $200 a month, something. Okay, so um, one day I see a leaflet. I was, we were in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I specifically in the city of Oakland California, Oakland, California, across the bay from San Francisco. That's so the Silicon Valley, right? Now, north no, north of Silicon Valley. But Oakland was a very poor community mm-hmm. at the time. It was the poor suburb of San Francisco, and the headline, the slogan on the leaflet said, "From B.A. Bachelor of Arts." to GA, general assistance, because there were lots of people who were getting college degrees and they couldn't, um, they couldn't find jobs. So they're going down to the welfare department with their college education.
0: Mm-hmm. All
1: right. So um, we had a little savings. So we decided we were going to stay in the Bay Area because it looked like it was a very active place. You would see slogans over bridges, prepare for the dictatorship of the proletariat. <laughs> All right.
0: Uh, oh, so you smashed like
1: the state in the, in the political sense. Smashed, oh, yeah, yeah, very active. Right, right, right. And um, um, there were all kinds of political forums and uh, maybe a dozen different organizations claiming their allegiance to Maoism mm-hmm. and um, a massive uh, diversion of different kinds of diversity. Of different kinds of political organizations, mm-hmm. so we didn't still didn't know what we were looking for, mm. and then what happened was um, I rented a place, and then I suddenly realized we're running out of money. That's mm. it, and we still hadn't figured out what to do. So, uh, and I wasn't pr- actually prioritizing looking for work; we were prioritizing looking for. Organizing opportunities, which didn't necessarily translate into a paying job. Of course. So um, I decided I better go to the welfare department, Mm -hmm. see if I can get something. And I walked in and I stood in line and then I talked to the social worker. Right. And almost immediately, she says, we're going to send you to CETA. What's CETA? What is CETA? It stood for the Comprehensive Employment Training Act. And there was a comprehensive training program.
0: Right.
1: right, It was a job training program. Mm -hmm. So I said, why should I go to CETA? She says, well, to get job training. I said, I have a bachelor's degree. I have a master's degree. I have a PhD. You have a PhD,
0: right. You have a doctorate. I
1: said, why do I need job training? I need a job. Right. All right. If you have a job, then I'll go and check out the job. Right. And she looks at me and says, we don't care how many initials you have to after your name, sir. If you want any help from us, you're going to go to Sita." Right. And I turned around and walked out and I went back to the place where we were staying. And I started rummaging through because I had been collecting political literature from every place I went. Mm-hmm. And I looked and suddenly I found that leaflet from BA to GA. And I said, it fits. From BA to GA, from PhD to job PhD training to GA, program. You know, BA, yeah. So I immediately ran down and, uh, to this uh, organization. It's called the Western Service Workers Association. Mm-hmm. And I uh, walked in. And I told them, I told it was a young man, probably 19 years old. He sat down and I said, I got to talk to somebody about this. I saw this leaf and tell the story. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds very familiar. And he began telling me about what had occurred in the 1970s. Yeah. And what had occurred actually had begun earlier at, during the um, war in Vietnam many companies were making a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And it became clear that that money wasn't going to continue to be there. You had, you know, protests in the street. Foreign allies, American allies were saying this can't go on because there are big demonstrations outside of the U.S. embassies and other parts of the world. I see. And these other countries are saying... We have to pay for this. We've got to pay for the security. This is disrupting us. Mm -hmm. You better stop. Mm -hmm. All right? You have soldiers who were, in many instances, on the verge of mutiny. Mm -hmm. And lots of people coming back with emotional problems with, uh, you know, what's now referred to as PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. You have people coming back with uh, symptoms from Agent Orange poisoning yes. and other chemicals, yeah, yeah. and the government is denying this. So, you have many uh, uh, veterans who are in opposition to the war, right. and so on. So, it becomes clear this isn't going to last. Mm. So, that's going to cost a lot of money. So, what do they do? Got to find more places to make money. Because, mm-hmm. you know, they're still going to make money, but they didn't want to make less money. Mm-hmm. So they began to evaluate, where can we go? Well, we got two places. We could stay abroad, or we can go back home. Now, being abroad is better. Why? Because you can pay people even less, and you can use some of uh, the money that you get from outside of the country mm-hmm. for what Lenin referred to as a bribe. Mm-hmm. Right? That's where the middle class comes from. Right. right. As a friend of mine used to say, the middle class as its head in the ruling class and its feet in the working class. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> but... there were no markets. The only markets that were available... Um, Pepsi-Cola had just signed this contract with Stolich Vodka, mm-hmm. all right, to exchange product. Coca-Cola had just made a deal with the People's Republic of China. And... Japan and Germany were now competing with the United States mm-hmm. because they were in an advantageous position because their industry was destroyed during World War II. So instead of Great Britain, which has these old factories, they are building with top-of-the-line equipment. Yeah. What's the other alternative for abroad? The other alternative for making money abroad is another war. But this wasn't going to settle. It wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. So the alternative, is you come back home. So where are we going to get money from? Right. And they looked around and they found two pockets, two places. One, you have this small group of unionized workers who, in some instances, assembly line workers, making $20, $25 an hour. Mm. And then you got um, the, what was called the War on Poverty, mm. which Lyndon Johnson put together at the same time that he was dealing with the Vietnam War. And the War on Poverty had had welfare programs, housing programs, medical programs, all kind of stuff. And nobody got a lot, but there were a lot of people. There were an awful lot of people on those programs. Mm-hmm. And what people got, there was a song of that during that time. It was called Not Enough to Live On, But a Little Too Much to Die. Okay, so they worked out plans with the U.S. government to how do we get this money? And they had a basic strategy. The strategy was using government money, taxpayer money, to replace higher paid workers, the union workers, with lower paid workers, those people who were not eligible for unions, because what's called the National Labor Relations Act, which had passed in 1935, divided the working class with a minority eligible for union membership under strict government control of what they could do, and the controls continued to mount in subsequent years. And then those who were outside, Mm -hmm. who were not eligible for unionization, which included farm workers and domestic workers and independent contractors and government employees, Mm -hmm. which was the majority of the working class. Right. Okay, so... They worked out a whole series of different programs. One type was called job training programs. Mm. All right. One example of this, I remember, I have vivid memories in 1975 when I was still teaching. It was a Saturday afternoon and I was listening to the news on the radio. And there was an announcement that Ford Motor Company had just announced they were going to be laying off. Um, thousands of workers mm. because their inventory of cars that they had already produced and not sold was too big. Mm. So they didn't need to produce more and they sent thousands of workers home. Mm. They said, We'll call you when we want you back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there were many people who were complaining, some people who were complaining about these damn welfare recipients. Mm. All right, Ronald Reagan did this. Bill Clinton did this. All right, and even before others, Gerald Ford. But, and uh, what occurred was they said, These people, I have to work. They're taking my money, they're giving it to them. They should be working. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the response was, You're kind of right, but there's a problem. What's the problem? The problem is, People aren't... Our education system has failed them. And consequently, many people don't know how to have a job, don't know how to work. So we need to teach them how to work. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to send them back to school because school already failed. So what we're going to do is to teach them on the job. Mm -hmm. So one of the first companies to sign with a program called the WIN program, Work Incentive, which was similar to the CETA program another mm-hmm. job training program mm-hmm. um, and what they did was Ford Motor Company signed a contract
0: mm-hmm.
1: with uh, the government mm-hmm. to train welfare recipients so they'd send 5,000 welfare recipients they'd train them on how to turn this screw mm-hmm. on an assembly line mm-hmm. They were called 89 Day Wonders. On the 90th day, they were eligible to join the union. Mm. But the union previously, the Auto Workers Union, had previously signed a contract in exchange for more money. Mm-hmm. Right? The first 89 days, union membership wasn't available to you. Mm-hmm. Right? A very short-sighted kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Uh, decision to make. Uh, The workers worked 89 days. The job took, it was estimated that a chimpanzee could have learned this job in about three hours. And (laughs) so what happened was after those, you know, probably one hour for a human being or 30 minutes, Mm -hmm. what were people doing? They were working, Mm -hmm. but they were called trainees. Right. Now, there were certain advantages for the company. One, for Ford. One, um, one advantage was if somebody didn't show up, if they were late, if they didn't do exactly what they were told, you are not only out of the training program, but there goes your welfare support. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you're, we're getting is mm-hmm. gone. Number two, whereas previously workers have been making $18, $20, $25 an hour, Ford paid $1 an hour. Right for transportation money. Jeez. And why? Because they're already getting paid. They got their two or three hundred dollars welfare right. check. Yeah. This yeah. was GA was separate things. Separate they things subsequently so connected welfare. okay. They connected jobs with that particular program and right. even other kind of things, food stamps, so right. on. Um and then the other thing Ford got big tax breaks because of the wonderful social contribution they were making to helping these people get off, learn a skill to be able to get off welfare so that they could now become taxpayers, so that they could hold their head up proudly and their children could hold their head up with pride. My father works. Okay, so this was supposedly the benefits. This was the logic Right. And at the 89 days, you got a nice certificate saying, Congratulations, you've completed the Ford Motor Company training program, win training program in this. And then you marched out the door, and inside the front door, you got another 5,000 win recipients coming in. Right. All right, another 5,000. Meanwhile, the people who previously had those jobs. Many of them ended up going into these welfare programs themselves. Sometimes there was a group of people who were painters, and they ended up going uh, and becoming painters on an army base, Mm -hmm. right, through Mm -hmm. these welfare programs where they made much less money. So this began to spread all across the country. It spread into nursing. Mm -hmm. You began to have positions called... Instead of a nurse, you had a nurse's aide. Then you had a nurse's aide trainee. Right. All right? Um, then it, it went into social work. Social workers themselves were affected. Instead of a social work, which was a professional title, right. you then they divided this up, and they had what were called eligibility workers and then case workers this all used to be done by a person who had a masters of social work right, right. so they broke these down into simpler jobs and they got paid less so many of the so people the
0: welfare recipients or people claiming for the welfare programs yeah would also then go and perform, work in perform, the welfare just perform social work yes the, right which and then would also be attending to other welfare recipients. That's right. So, That's okay. Right.
1: <laughs> okay. So, then this was just one. Job training programs are one. Prison labor, right? right in California, right. was one of the. Uh, there's all prisoners have always worked in the United States, and one of the things people are often confused because the 15th Amendment that outlawed slavery says slavery or involuntary servitude is. Uh, uh, prohibited in the United States or in any state or territory thereof, except as punishment for a crime. Right. Okay, so it began to spread, and then what occurred was uh, in many instances you began to see um, private companies moving into the grounds of prisons. Mm. Right. And the same process going on with people working for little or no money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you got all this security. You don't work. You know where you go. You go to uh, um, high security prison because you're very dangerous. Mm-hmm. If you're re- you refusing to work in prison, is like you going on strike. Mm-hmm. And we can't have the example no. of that. Dangerous. So we have. um Those are two kinds of things. You have various kinds of zone programs. Mm. You have globalization. Mm -hmm. You have all of these things where the government... So the government is using taxpayer money to pay these welfare events to provide free labor for Ford. Mm -hmm. Okay. So back to the Bay Area. Right. Back to... I walked into this office. Yeah. And first the person told me the story. And suddenly I said... You know what happened when I started in my Ph.D. program? It was a special Ph.D. program because as a first-year Ph.D. student, I was sent into classrooms to teach, Mm -hmm. not to grade a professor's exam, not to deal with little uh, discussion sections. I was given my own classes Mm -hmm. for which I was paid one-tenth, one-fifteenth, mm-hmm. that of a professor, professor uh, one-third or fourth of a lecturer who was at the bottom of the mm-hmm. faculty scale. We weren't faculty. We were students. Mm. We had to do everything. We prepared the classes. We graded the cl- exams. You did the job. We did the job. Mm. We were teaching. okay? And suddenly I realized, that's what happened to me. that's exactly what happened to me because uh, uh, my university was one of the first. It's not the first, but it was one of the first in 1971 that began Mm -hmm. doing this. Mm -hmm. And two years later, this was going on all across the United States Mm -hmm. today. Then in California, the university of California system, right? A very prestigious public school system, which has, I think 15 or 16 campuses, Mm -hmm more than 50% of all undergraduate education is taught by PhD students. All right, so, um, and at first we didn't realize it, right? There's this wonderful, uh, there is this wonderful documentary called Berkeley in the 60s. -hmm. And one section is about the Panthers. Mm -hmm. And one of the Panthers they were interviewing talks about it. He said, we thought we were so hot that our shit didn't stink. Well, that's what we PhD (laughs) students thought. Okay, so at that point I said, okay, now I see my understanding Mm -hmm. of fascism Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what's happening here because here is the government taking everything away from workers Mm -hmm. and giving it all to capital, Mm -hmm. and that's what they did. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I became a full-time organizer. I became a cadre with that organization.
0: So so which organization did you... Which organization did you finally choose to
1: work? It was called the Western Service Workers Association. It was a, what we call a mutual benefit association. The Western, so, sorry,
0: what Western? Western
1: Service Workers Association. So our members—it was a membership association—and mm-hmm. I got to go back. Member, I mentioned the 1935 National Labor Relations Act. Yes. Okay. So our organization was uh, primarily anybody could join. But our primary membership were those who were ineligible for union membership Mm -hmm. explicitly because of government regulations that prohibited them. And we focused, our focus was, uh, we had a benefit program, similar to the Black Panther Party benefit program. Yes. All right. And our um it included a it was all volunteer community based supported we had a core we had sister organizations around the country and we had a core of full time cadre mm. and I, that's what i did for 29 years mm. my job was uh, um, largely to rec- for the most most of the time it was to recruit and train Full-time volunteer organizers. Mm-hmm. Also worked with part-timers. In everything we did, we had to reach out. We refused government money. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. they tried to offer it, and we said no. Money is a form of control.
0: Right. We
1: were neither legal nor illegal. Right. Okay. Right. Legality is a form of control, just like illegality is. And um, we were entirely community-based and supported. So we were constantly out building support. Getting doctors to donate their time and services, mm-hmm. pharmacies for medicines, uh, eyeglasses, eye exams, volunteer lawyers to help people with legal problems, and so on. At the same time, we didn't advocate legislation, but we fought against legislation, policies, and programs that we saw were going to be more harmful to the working class mm-hmm. and to our me- as a whole and our membership in specific. Mm. And a lot of our work was building, um, so many of the people who participated with us, maybe small business people, maybe professionals, mm-hmm. because based on a common understanding. Look, you have this little store. You know what? If these poor people in the community have more money, you know what that means for you? You get more business. Mm-hmm. Okay, so our focus was to deal with the commonality of interest, mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. between those who participate at any level. And anyone was eligible. We had doctors who worked full-time with us, lawyers who worked full-time with us, domestic workers, farm workers, Mm -hmm. unemployed people. All right? And that's what I did. And a lot of my work, in addition, um, I provided practical training, but I also provided political training. So we've studied the history of workers organizing around the world mm-hmm. and learned about what was, what worked and mm-hmm. learned about what didn't work mm-hmm. and why. Mm-hmm. And I studied that and I taught that. Mm-hmm. And I taught this to, you know, some were students, some people were just anybody mm-hmm. who came to work with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, that particular thing is very much related to my coming to China. I came what to China... Twenty-nine years after that, in two thousand five, mm-hmm. I came for one year, and I had applied just to come. I had some some of my comrades had come to China to teach English. So there was a big campaign for English education mm-hmm. before the Olympics, and so some had come to learn about China and to teach.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I um, I had an opportunity. So I said, okay, I want to go. And I, I applied for jobs in many different places. And I knew, because of my political study, I knew about 20th century China. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know about places, however, in China. Mm-hmm. And I had a number of job offers in different places. Mm-hmm. And one of the, uh, actually it was the first job that it was offered, was in the Jiangsu province in a city called Huayan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Huayan, the letter that I got from the so teacher's in the east college, of the country, right? East, yeah. yeah. The letter that I got from the school mm-hmm. said the city of Huayan uh, Teachers College is located in the city of Huayan, mm-hmm. which is proud to be the hometown of the first premier of the People's Republic of China, mm-hmm. Zhou Enlai. Zhou <inaudible> Enlai, and I said, okay, that's where I'm going. Right, and I came. And I was fully intending to go back and continue the struggle in the United States. And when my year was ending, I faced some contradictions. Mm -hmm. And um, what happened was there were two particular things. One, I enjoyed being here. It was very nice. I enjoyed working with students. But the two things that caused me to stay... Is One, I would often encounter people, particularly students, but others, who anytime I'd mention the United States, they would say, oh, everybody, what a rich country, everybody is so rich, we need to become like the United States. Now, I'm a sociologist, so I knew theoretically everybody wasn't rich. And I knew practically, because I not only worked in the Bay Area, but we had offices in different parts of the country, in various places in California and other places. And I had spent 29 years of my life working and living in the poorest communities in the country. Mm. So I knew. It wasn't true. It's just not true. Right. Right? And the other thing was I had given, I was teaching writing classes. I had a couple of classes, two classes. And I had given my students an assignment. The assignment was to uh, read a very short essay by Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher. Right. And the essay was part of an autobiography that he wrote late in life. And the particular essay, I can't remember the exact title, but uh, the, the theme is What I Lived For. Mm. And I said, read this short one page. Read this. And imagine yourself in your 70s. Right. What would, what I lived for. So I got 75 of these back. And one person said, one student said, well, when I was young, there was a big gap. Uh, uh, No, uh, there were two. He said there was a big gap between the rich and the poor. And uh, in the countryside and in the city. city Countryside people were poor, and I wanted to do something to change that. Mm. Then um, another student said, Well, when I was young, I discovered that that disabled people weren't treated very well. So I committed my life to do something about that. And 72 of my students said, I lived to have a good life for me and my country. This is fifty-nine years after the founding of the people. No, it wasn't. At that time it was fifty seven years mm-hmm. after after the founding of the People's Republic of China.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, Oh my, they sound like American China. But kids. You said
0: so I lived a good life for me and for me my family. For me and my family. Me and my family, okay,
1: Right. Okay. Nobody else. Nobody else.
0: Not country, sorry. Not
1: country. Not yeah. my community. Not yeah. the working class. My not my family. Family. nobody. Me and my just family. Me and my house. And I thought about this and I thought about those two things. And I said, this is a problem.
0: Mm.
1: We already lost the Soviet union and we can't do that again. Mm. And I had a personal struggle. I struggled with my comrades in the United States. Mm. And I said, I need to stay because I have something I need to teach.
0: Mm.
1: And from my background and my experience and my knowledge, I need to teach them,
0: and that's obviously when you started. And
1: then I stayed, stayed. and then I stayed in China. Mm. Okay, um, um, one of the things there there are various places in provincial capitals in mm-hmm. China. There are um, various um, cemeteries that are uh, memorials for. Uh, those communists killed by the Japanese or killed by the Guomindong. Right. And uh, I've been to several of them. And anytime I go, I always take young Chinese people with me, either students or young teachers or some other young Chinese people. Mm-hmm. And as we walk around, we see 17, 18, 19, 20 uh, pictures mm-hmm. of seven, uh, young Chinese people who were killed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'll often comment, I'll say, you know what? If these people had only focused on themselves and their families, then you might not be in school today. Right. And the response that I get is always, Mark, I never would have come here, but I'm glad you brought me here because I need to know that. I need to understand that and be reminded of that. Anyway, so I spent two years in the city of Huai'an. I was interested in staying. This is still in Jiangsu province. Still in Jiangsu province. In the east, okay. And then partway through my second year, I went and talked to the uh, person in charge of hiring foreigners. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'd like a contract for next year. And they said, sorry, we only hire foreigners, a very small school, small city, And we like to give students a variety. So we only hire foreign teachers for two years, foreign language teachers. And uh, I think actually that was the only foreigners who were there. And um, I went through a range of emotions, disappointment, sadness, anger, confusion. And this lasted for about 24 hours. And then (laughs) I went to my apartment and I wrote a song. Now I've played guitar, I'm 72 years old, I've played guitar since I was nine years old, but I always played music that other people wrote. Right. And I sat down, and after three hours, I had a song.
0: Which song is that?
1: It's called Huayan, Promise of the Future. Let me find this let me find this so this was the first I've now written this is the first song I've now written more than 70 songs about all connected somehow to China and this was the first and it was the one that I wrote before I came to Beijing out upon the Jiangsu plain lies the city of Waiang It's a place I'm proud to call my home Sitting on the Grand Canal is rich with history But it's the promise of the future That means so much to me is far and near with growth and promise all around the mist is bright ahead it was the promise of the future toward which Premier Joe led that's the first verse in the chorus so and it goes through and it goes through the, uh, the structure uh, has changed of Huayan. but it originally it said it was uh, there were four districts and four counties yes and it, that's changed but uh, I go through each of the counties and I some see. highlights of the counties okay
0: uh, so but it's all this, the whole, whole thing in your, in your
1: apartment in my
0: apartment does I just went home I you?
1: wasn't planning on writing a right. song Right? So actually, this is a critical point. The first 11 or 12 songs that I wrote were never planned. Right. Never planned. Right. And people would say, you're a songwriter. I said, I'm not a songwriter. Mm-hmm. I said, it came to me. I don't know where it came mm-hmm. from. It was just my feelings. Some of them sitting. Uh, some of them I was just playing guitar. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'd be walking down the street. And suddenly I would start thinking about something. And lyrics would come to me. And I had to get home. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Later, after the first dozen. I could consciously decide, I'm going to write a song about this. And sometimes I could write them in one day, sometimes they would take longer. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I have a number of songs I can do a few of that people asked me
0: to write a song. Okay, okay. I you want to go back? this? You mentioned the Grand Canal in there. Grand Canal. So this is the, the same Grand Canal that goes all the way from away. Beijing to Hangzhou. Beijing to Hangzhou, right? Yes. Okay, and that's and this is uh,
1: one of the spots on the Grand Canal. Okay, okay. One of the spots on the Grand Canal. Okay, but I talk about here one. Uh, there's uh, the fourth largest Hongzhou Lake. It's the fourth largest in in Beijing or right. uh, in China. Uh, the farmlands in Shui and I talk all about the landmarks. Now the right. significant thing is that you could just feel. You mm. could just feel this. So I went back in. I left in two thousand seven. I'll talk about how I left and where I came to or how I got to Beijing. Mm -hmm. But I left in 2007 and I went back in 2011 because I was invited back. uh, Huayang cuisine. There are eight main cuisines in Mm -hmm. China and Huayang cuisine, which is sometimes referred to as Jiangsu cuisine, Mm -hmm. is one of those eight. Mm -hmm. All right. So every year there is a big festival, Mm -hmm. Huayang Food Festival that Mm -hmm. they have. And lots of these festivals start with some kind of performance, musical performance. So I was invited back Mm -hmm. in 2011 to perform that song Mm -hmm. at this festival. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, the city had changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. Um, I was staying, one, an airport had been built Two, I was staying in a hotel that didn't exist. And then I moved to another. The city invited me. They they had a sister city program. So they had these representatives from sister cities all over the world. Mm. So they found out. I had told them I was going to be performing at the show. And they said, please stay. We'd like you to join. We're going to do a tour and you can help us talk to people. Mm. So I spoke with a lot of people there. But I had moved hotels after the show. And I'm staying in a hotel, and I didn't know where it was. So I got up early, walked around, and suddenly I realized I was a 10-minute walk from where I had lived and worked for two years. Wow. The, it had just changed, changed so dramatic, dramatically. Okay. I went back in 2017 <laughs> because the, um, I was invited by the university to come and yeah. give a lecture. Yeah. And more changes, more changes. Mm-hmm. They had built a tram, a two-route two tram. Uh, uh, they had whole new sections of the city, new city government. Right, new right, right. It was just dramatically different. And I said, this is what my song was about. Right. This is what my song was about. In 2015, I was uh, named an honorary citizen by the um, uh, party committee. Mm-hmm.
0: In Huayan. a citizen
1: of, of Huayan of for the promotional work because I sing this, I always talk about my experience mm-hmm. uh-huh. there and what an impact it had uh-huh. and so on. So, on the one hand, I think, you know, I was taught something by my students and I said, mm-hmm. I have to stay. Mm-hmm. I have something to teach. Mm-hmm. It's not English, but I can use English. Mm-hmm. I can use English. And mm-hmm. then
0: after, would yeah. you say that that um, in Hoi, 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 An, Hoi, An. Hoi An, that's where you've seen the starkest change? Because uh, if you no, I don't know about
1: the starkest, but it was mm-hmm. just it was constant. Right, it was just day after day. You could just feel this, whether there was anything you saw or not, mm-hmm. and you could see people with more money than they had before. You can Mm. see people moving into nicer places, Mm. right? That general environment getting better. And if you go off into the countryside, and not only in Jiangsu province, but all around China, Mm. I've been to 29 provinces, and some of them I've been to many, many, many times. Mm. I've been to villages. I've been to uh, farm communities. I've Mm. been to small cities, middle city, big cities. Mm. And you go out and you see farms, and you see an old farm farmhouse but right next to it is a new house that people are now living in right right okay just dramatic changes everywhere but i was you know the two years there Mm -hmm. just made such an impression on me and then when i went back it was just different again and then several years later six years later it was again different
0: i see i see all right so this is the first song and then did you start writing songs immediately after that? No was actually what happened
1: was uh, I applied uh, so at that point, once I wrote the song I said, okay, they should they have the right to decide who they want to hire. right so I, I can live with that, not a problem. So but the first thing I did was I went I took my song to the, uh, the Foreign Affairs office for the city government mm-hmm. of Wyan. I had gotten to know some of the people there. And because they would regularly hold events and they would invite all the foreigners in town and they have dinners or celebrate different festivals or so on. And uh, some of the and then I got to know some of the people even better than some of the other foreigners. Right. Uh, So I went down to their office. I said, I have a gift for you. And I brought my guitar and I played this song And one of the people immediately asked his staff member, one of his staff members translated into Chinese. And then so she subsequently translated it later. Then she got it to a friend of hers who is a poet, Mm. who then put it into, you know, more more poetic Chinese stuff. Uh And then I proceeded. I was still there for several months and every opportunity I had, I played this song and I talked to students and other people. I said, I'm leaving. You're going to have to learn this song. You're going to have to learn this song. And I still have, I'm still in contact with a lot of former students there. And they say, oh, I remember your song. That was wonderful. So this was part, I have a book I wrote, tells a lot about Huayan. I've yep. written articles about it. So this is what the city was acknowledging. Right. So I applied for, I, by this time I'm staying in China. So I applied for jobs all over China.
0: Mm.
1: And I got 18 job offers mm. all over. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't want to go to Shanghai. And I didn't want to come to Beijing. Why? I grew up in Los Angeles. I spent 24 years living in San Francisco. I never really lived in New York. But if you take all of the time that I spent in New York, it probably equals three years mm right sometimes 6 months 9 months a week mm. right so i had lived and been uh, except for uh, about 6 years of my life i had lived in big international cities mm. so why do i need to come to china to live in a big international city so and i had been to shanghai mm. and i knew i didn't want to live there mm. but i got to, I, but i also realized you know i have to apply everywhere So I applied for jobs there and I applied for jobs in Beijing and I was given two offers in Beijing. And I hadn't been to Beijing, so I decided, well, I better go rather than just turning it down. And I came to Beijing at the end of March in 2007 and I realized Beijing wasn't Shanghai. Mm-hmm. That Beijing is significantly different, mm-hmm. that it's a, much more of a Chinese city, but it's, also, it's got international stuff, mm-hmm. but it's also got much, much more of China and Chinese history. Mm-hmm. And I did an interview at the place where I'm teaching now, Minzu University of China, mm-hmm. and I did an interview at a university called Tsinghua University, which mm-hmm. is generally considered the number one university in China, mm-hmm. one of the most diff- difficult to get into. And I did interviews with both. And for the next 24 hours, I had a mental tennis match. Mm -hmm. Tsinghua, Minda, ball going across Mm -hmm. the net, over the net, one after another. Finally, I stopped. And I said, oh, I know what to do. And I sat down, I wrote an email to Tsinghua University saying, thank you very much. Very honored to be offered a position there. But I'm not coming Mm. And my thought process was, look, I had lived and worked for 30 years in poor communities across the United States, and that many of those communities were minority communities. Mm. And that my life had never been focused on working for the best and the brightest and these Tsinghua students were going to have a wonderful life, Mm. no matter what I did. Mm. And that maybe I can, and since a lot of the... My current students, some of them stay in Beijing, but a lot of them go all over. And many of them go back to their own communities. Mm. So I started to think, well, maybe I can do a little more. I can Mm. offer more there. Mm. So that's where I went. And uh, I've been there for 13 and a half years almost. And oftentimes when we make decisions, we have second thoughts. Did Mm. I do the right thing? Mm. Not once. Not a second. Have I ever thought, maybe I should have gone somewhere else? Hmm. No, it was a wonderful decision.
0: Good. So, and then I yes, started writing more songs. And then you write more
1: songs. <laughs> and then I started writing more songs. <laughs>
0: um,
1: so, let's see. Um, so the, the songs that I have here are from a variety of different places and a variety of different times. So let me just take... Um, let me...
0: I think one thing I'll mention is that yeah. so you, you, your, your songs, you've got different types of songs.
1: Different types.
0: And um, some of them have been very popular in China and then you've played them on, on TV shows. Yeah. Um, just was mention, so what was the TV show that you were on and what what sort of songs did you play there? And, and obviously then we'll talk about your other songs, your political songs. Because okay. those are the ones that you're not necessarily uh, sure. as well known for.
1: Um, there is this TV program called Star Avenue. The Chinese name is Xingwan La Dao. Uh-huh. And it's a talent show and an entertainment show. Uh-huh. The entertainment aspects means that they decide. Uh-huh. The talent show is you do what you can do, but they determine whether it's good enough to be on the show. They determine what you wear. Uh-huh. They they make no not that song, do this other song. <laughs> so Uh, I did a variety of things and I did one of my songs there and I also did, I don't speak Chinese, but I sing a lot of Chinese songs. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, I did, there was, there have been about, well, I guess at this point Uh it's about 15 documentaries ranging from eight minutes to, 35 minutes or something like that Mm -hmm. and one of them was for the city government of beijing it was for their website and it was called i don't speak chinese but i sing chinese songs very that's the name of the documentary that's that's the title of the documentary Mm -hmm. that was done (laughs) Uh, so it was a combination of those things and then the uh, one of the it's a weekly program they eliminate you start with five people they eliminate one, they eliminate two, they eliminate three, and then there's one winner. And then then they have a month. all the four winners from a month go into a monthly program. Then they have an annual winner.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And I made it to be second in the week that I was in. And one of my uh, stipulations was, okay, I'll go by whatever you say, but I got one thing. I want to sing one of my songs
0: mm-hmm.
1: on any show that I'm on. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, but because you are not Chinese, Mm -hmm. uh, any song you sing, if it's not Chinese, it must have Chinese in it. Mm -hmm. So we had to take one of my songs and get parts of it translated and then figure out how to be able to sing it and Mm -hmm. so on. So, um, so what I did then was a mixture of of stuff. And then I also did some other stuff that wasn't singing. I see.
0: Okay. So that that's that's the name of the show, basically. Yeah. Avenue of the Stars.
1: A- Star Avenue. Star Avenue.
0: Cinquale Okay. Okay. So and then what song? What's the next song we're going to listen to now? Um. Let's see. Okay.
1: I was. Um, so I got to Beijing in two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. And. Um, 2009 was the 60th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. Right. And I wrote a song about it. It's called To Make Its People Strong. Mm. And there's a special army base in Beijing. And uh, I was asked to come sing on a 60th anniversary show. This, it's, uh, the army base is referred to, the English translation is, The Three Armies. And this is the base where they train the guards for Tiananmen Square Mm -hmm. and the uh, Great Hall of the People and the Forbidden City and all of this. And these are also the guards that they train for uh, diplomats Mm -hmm. to uh, guard embassies and stuff. Mm -hmm. So And it uh, includes Air Force and Navy and Army. And I was informed that I was invited to come sing there. And at first, I was very surprised. I said, Mm -hmm. they're going to let me in? Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly.
1: (laughs) And they said, yeah, you can get in. And I walked in. No problem. They were expecting me. And I got to walk around the base. I have some amazing photos of me walking walking around the base with all of these uh, soldiers in formation behind me. So they not only let me in, they let me take pictures (laughs) and all this stuff. So... Uh, This song is to make its people strong. I changed it a little bit for the 70th anniversary, but I'll sing the original. Come on everybody, listen to my story About a country and a people I will tell you in a song Just in case you're wondering it's the people's republic of China it's come a long way less than 60 years to make its people strong the struggle with great troubles defeated many foes and overcome much misery their people's courage shows they know the problems still exist, many things to overcome but their pledge is very serious and their gains won't be undone out on the horizon the view ahead is bright but society in harmony is not built overnight Country's founders promises were to those who do the work and with scientific knowledge those commitments won't be sure moving forward on the road that socialism takes adherence to its principles can't be allowed to break the people and their story about a country and its people i will tell you in a song just in case you're wondering it's the people's republic of china it's come a long way in only 60 years to make its people strong it's come a long way in only 60 years
0: I like that one very much. Actually, so this you played this in the army base.
1: In the so, army base, yeah. and they had there were other performers
0: there, right? And and how did the uh, soldiers respond when you when, when you finished?
1: I don't know how many of them spoke English,
0: right? But very <laughs> politely,
1: they were respectful. I got a yeah. nice introduction. Okay, I got a nice introduction, and uh, obviously, um, I was uh, obviously I was worthy of some respect, <laughs> or I would not have been invited. Of course, of course. So. I mean, yes therefore uh uh, they responded very respectfully i got an applause but uh again i don't know how many understood anything
0: sure i mean it's uh it's i mean obviously there's a lot of lot to think about with that song so people think about 60 years that was the 60th anniversary about how far the country's come and you said something about harmony building a nation on harmony is not so is not an easy task
1: no but so you understand this uh the concept was particularly from Hu Jintao is building a harmonious society.
0: Right. Okay. So you're referencing that.
1: I'm referencing that, mm-hmm. and very specifically because, mm-hmm. uh, and what am I saying? You can't just build a harmonious society. It takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes time. It's mm-hmm. not an event. Mm-hmm. There is a process. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And let me see. Was there something else here in that song? Um, oh and at the same time there was an emphasis in terms of the um um the attention it needs to uh, the concept of scientific socialism yeah. so scientific knowledge
0: yes scientific knowledge
1: right
0: right I see. so so all, so all of the political songs you draw oh from absolutely imme- immediate sort of concept yeah all of, my, all of my crazy songs. Honestly.
1: Yeah, all of my songs. I try to incorporate whatever it is mm. that's happening. I have, let me sing another one. There's, I, I mentioned that I've been to the uh, various memorials. Have so you been to Nanjing?
0: I haven't been to Nanjing. No. Okay.
1: So Nanjing has a very uh, very nice memorial, again, for people, communists who were killed by, uh, in the fighting against the Japan. war of resistance, mm-hmm. Japanese aggression, and against the Kuomintang in the civil so, war. Okay. But they have another memorial And it's a memorial for the 300,000 people killed in what's known as the rape of Nanking, Mm. Nanjing. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, it's a very empowering, moving memorial with lots of statues and information and photos. And there was one particular exhibit where there was a plaque and there was a poem, an inscription, I don't know who wrote the inscription. And I copied this down and I came back to Beijing and I said I'm going to use this in a song right so uh, the title of the song that I gave it is let peace spread fully to the world let peace spread fully and the first part the chorus is uh, from the inscription let the white bone Leap. Let the grieved souls rest peacefully. Turn the slaughtering sword into a warning. Turn the departed names into engravings in history. Let the children no longer face the fear. Let the mothers no longer shed their tears. Let war be distant From all mankind That's the inscription Hmm. At the end of 37 They began their drive And the innocents fell From their guns and knives As the fascist boots Attacked Nanjing Trying all of China Under control to bring I'll skip the chorus again till the end. The rich and the leaders all ran away, hoping with their own lives they would not have to pay. And the poor were left on their own, and remains only in their memories and in their bones. was driven to defeat because the evil fascist beast could not compete with the powerful red forces that brought victory that was soon to do the same for the whole country let the white bones fall into sleep let the grieved souls rest peacefully Turn the slaughtering sword into a warning Turn the deep-hearted names to engravings in history Let the children no longer face the fear Let the mothers no longer shed their tears Let war be distant from all mankind. Beautiful,
0: beautiful song. So, there's a line in there. uh, The poor.
1: The poor poor were left 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 on their own. So, what? Okay, so So this is
0: referencing what happened. Yeah, what happened was the
1: government left Mm -hmm. and all the people had money left. Mm-hmm. Left the city, they, yeah. They went in inter- to the interior, right. right? The government relocated out of Nanjing, mm-hmm. and the people that were left were poor people and workers right. who couldn't get out.
0: And that's right, when they, and the, Chinese, the, Japanese, the Japanese arrived. And,
1: and these were, are the people who were killed, and, sort of right? Right. So rather than staying to protect them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right, and it or was the,
0: and giving them way out, or
1: giving them a way out, yeah. right? So
0: they abandoned them. So they abandoned the they abandoned the poor, them. The, poor the, the working class was abandoned. right. By the by, the rich, the uh, the elite. Right. I didn't know there was a to that. Yeah. I see. I mean, I, I think we mentioned this before um, uh, some time ago. But uh, you know, see, with the nineteen seventies, uh, when we like, were discussing it earlier, uh, your sort of, you know, uh, with the war, the Vietnam War, the resistance to that. Yeah. Obviously, at that time, there was a lot of resistance music, political music. Yeah. Uh, I think people like Phil Phil Oakes and. I guess
1: I have I have uh, one of the lectures that I do. I've, I've lectured at sixty-two different Chinese universities. Yeah. And one of the lectures that I do is called "The Sounds of Social Change." Right. And I talk and sing about music from the abolitionist movement, <laughs> the um, uh, U.S. labor communist movement in the nineteen thirties, the civil rights movement, and the anti-Vietnam. War.
0: You know, what, what, what today. I mean, I'm trying to think of what kind of resistance music or songs of social change I can think of, and I can't really think of any prominent Western artists or even genres or even some songs from the last. I don't even know the last decade uh, that comes to mind for me. What, 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 okay, do you think so, it's sure? It's there's a lot of or,
1: there's or, no no no. Some mm, rap music is like rap. that. There's even folk music like that. The thing is. Uh, and in fact, there are a variety of different podcasts that, mm. you know, leftist progressive podcasts that I hear that often play music and they have songs that I've never heard new current music and so on. Mm. The thing, however, is that um, what occurred during the 1970s is that some what we call protest music became popular music, right? It was played commonly on radio Right. There was a very famous song by a man named Barry McGuire called The Eve of Destruction. Mm. This was referred to as a popular protest song. Mm. OK, so you would hear a lot of stuff. You would hear Bob Dylan's, you know, of Masters. Masters of War. Yeah. You'd hear Blowing in the Wind. You'd hear a variety of other kinds of things. And it became even everybody knew, uh, you know, We Shall Overcome. Mm. Lots of stuff along those lines. So it began to be played very regularly on radio and stuff. Now it's it's back into where more special you know, specialty stuff. Mm. And um I'm here in China, so I don't you know, I hear things periodically if I'm listening to some kind of broadcast or podcast mm. from mm. the US. But uh nothing that I'm immediately familiar with in terms of either the the musicians mm. or um uh what the songs are. Mm. You know, and every once in a while you'll find something where Um, James not James Taylor um, who's the Canadian guy Uh, Neil Young or uh, maybe even um, Bruce Springsteen Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. but a lot of their stuff uh, now is very much tied into uh, parliamentary Mm -hmm. politics against Trump in favor of Biden or something make sure to vote right right? or things along those lines
0: (laughs) Okay, good, good, good. Okay, what's what's our next song?
1: Well, um, I noticed a picture of Norman Bethune. Yes. Okay, so why don't we try that? I actually have... Oh, no, let me back up a little bit. Instead sure. of Norman Bethune. So over the, my years in China, I've had the wonderful good fortune of being able to meet a number of different... Uh, relatives, Mm -hmm. children, grandchildren of old foreigners who came, and uh, a couple of actually those foreigners also. But uh, most of them have passed away, but there are a few still alive. And met them, met their children, and I've organized a number of different lecture series about these at a couple of different universities, my own university and one at Peking University. The one at my own university was called... Um, they helped build new China, and the presenters were the children and grandchildren of foreigners who came in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, mm-hmm. 60s. And then um, did a class at Peking University, which we called Friends, Foreign Friends of the Chinese Revolution. All right, so um, and then I had written a few songs, and One day, I was contacted by CCTV, China Central Mm -hmm. Television, and they were making a series, a six-part documentary series. This was in 2015. So they were making this uh, documentary series about foreigners Mm -hmm. who had been in China before, during the war against Japan, the Mm -hmm. war of resistance, Mm -hmm. Japanese aggression, And had somehow contributed in that war during that time period. And they asked me, they interviewed me about a couple of people, and they asked if I could write a song. I actually wrote two songs. One of them was about a man named Norman Bethune, who we can talk about in a minute. Mm. But I wrote a general song. They used the Bethune song. I was very happy about that. Mm. They didn't use my other songs. They originally said the title of the series would be Red Dream Chasers.
0: Okay, Red Dream Chasers.
1: And they later, when they actually produced the series, they changed it to Red Dream Catchers. But I like Chasers better. Okay. So I left. Red Dream Chasers. Her. Red dream chasers. In China, they all took a stand. Red dream chasers. Power must be in the workers' hands. They joined the Chinese people's fight to build a future that is bright. They fought the fascists to the end and their commitment
0: red dream chase who are the red Quite a few, red chase. Well,
1: the, the ones that were talked about in the series it started with norman bethune uh-huh. the canadian doctor uh-huh. uh, another was edgar snow uh-huh. who was the writer of the book red star over china uh-huh. and uh, snow's book was very instrumental because lots of the foreigners who came during that period of time came because they read his book mm. and mm. in fact uh, one of the people who uh, was in this series is a woman named Isabel Crook, who, in fact, was born in China almost 105 years ago in Sichuan province. Mm. And years later, she met a man named David Crook. Her name was Isabel Brown. And she met. Or she was a uh, daughter of Methodist minist- missionaries in mm. China. She'd gone to Canada. She uh, came back. And was studying, she was a graduate student in anthropology. She met her future husband, David Crook, who had, was a, uh, there's a bust at the university where they taught that says uh, British Jewish communist Mm. on it. And so he was a communist and they got together and um, they ended up being the founder, among the founders of that university. Um, They had gone to the UK um, during the war. And Isabel was with a Canadian unit, and she was working making ammunition in a factory. Mm-hmm. And David was, uh, I'm not sure what David was doing, but he, he was in the British Army. And then uh, they came back to China. And as Isabel says, in 1949, we were about to go back to, China, to London.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And suddenly, she said, the Communist Party realized they were about to win. And they said, please don't go. Our diplomats are going to need to speak English, all right. So the first couple of generations of Chinese diplomats who spoke English, or of English professors after uh, the founding of the People's Republic of China, so they stayed. They came into Beijing with the with the army. Well, they came in. The,
0: actually, they, they rolled in with the, with the army. Yeah. And wow. then
1: they stayed, and they were among the founders of what's called Beijing Foreign Studies University, which is the number one school in the country. It's not the only one, but it specializes in foreign languages and culture. They currently, their curriculum currently involves a uh, hundred different languages wow. that people can study there. Wow. Okay. And um, so, and Isabel is actually the person that introduced me to Isabel's son, introduced me to a lot of the other foreign born children who are now not children anymore, mm. uh, were participated in this lecture. Um, um, let's see, who else? Uh, Rui Ali, mm. who was from New Zealand. He lived in China for 60 years. He was a communist from New Zealand. Mm. He, along with Isabel and several others, were founders from of an organization called Gong Ho, mm. which was built in uh, during the War of Resistance to help... Put people to work, mm. and at the same time, manufacture things that were hard to get that people needed mm. to live. Um, who else? Uh, I think one of the other people in the series was Joseph Needham okay. from the UK. Okay. All right. Um, and then I can't remember who the sixth one was. I'm not. Oh, Israel Epstein. Oh, Israel yes. Epstein, who was mm-hmm. born in Poland came as a two-year-old to Harbin in 1917 and later lived in Tianjin and when his parents left when Japan attacked, he stayed. He became a very well-known journalist. Um, Wrote about a dozen books. So... um, and he later became a member of the Communist Party, became a citizen of the People's Republic of China, mm-hmm. was part of the parliamentary body of China. And he, mm-hmm. he died shortly before I came. Mm-hmm. And although I had known about Bethune and Snow, I'd read well, Snow's okay. uh, Snow's book. Uh, it was Snow's book was the last book I read before I came to China. I had already planned to come. See. And I I read it about every decade. Once a decade, I uh-huh. read it again. Uh-huh. So, and I subsequently found That's Red that Star of China. Red Star over China. Oh, actually, let me explain here. So, David Crook. The connection here between Snow and Crook was uh, when uh, Beth, uh when Bethune, uh, the Canadian doctor, yes. right before he came to China, uh, and was aiding the. Uh, Red army, it was called the Eighth Army, Balu, um, and he died while serving with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before he came to China, he was in Spain.
0: In and, the International Brigade.
1: In the International Brigade. And he is credited with, the problem was a lot of uh, the casualties were not specifically based on injury, but they were based on blood loss. Mm. So he developed a mobile transfusion unit, all right, in Spain while well, he was in Spain. And um, while he was in Spain, one of his patients was David Crook, who was injured in the war. Uh-huh. And the uh, and Bethune gave David Crook a book. He said, "You should read this," and the book was. And Snow's Red Star Over star China. China. So then David Crook decided mm-hmm. to come. But a lot of the other people talk about how they read that book and they came. I see. So in a sense,
0: the, you, you're also a Red Dream chaser then.
1: Uh, we could say that. Yeah. We could say that.
0: <laughs> so what, I guess a Red Dream chaser is someone, a foreigner who's come to China to yeah. aid the, the cause of, of socialism. Yeah. You know, the working
1: cause. yeah. And, you know, you have lots of people who came because here's... It's, you know, I can become successful, I can Mm -hmm. make fortune, and China welcomes them, Mm -hmm. and that's fine, Mm -hmm. and that's fine, people come for whatever, everybody, uh, as a friend of mine once said, everyone does things for the same reason, that reason is their own reason. (laughs) <laughs> right okay it's all the same uh mm-hmm. let me see i have a couple of songs that i've written yes. about some of these people let's let's, 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 uh, listen. Uh, a let's see dream okay so let's start with bethune norman bethune um was in china for less than a year and he was yeah known. he was he's very uh, popular he's a very well what happened was he died he got uh sepsis from uh, a, you know, blood infection mm. because his he was cut with a scalpel, uh-huh. a surgical knife while he was operating. While he was operating, <laughs> and he was um, and then after that, Mao Zedong wrote uh, a poem. a statement, a memorial, a memorial,
0: okay. and so just to clarify, he he was a Canadian doctor, Canadian the doctor, grade, then came here after probably reading the Red Star of of of, of, of China, and um, no, no, no.
1: No, that was the Red Star over China. Maybe, I don't think. I'm not No, basically what happened was, I'm not sure about that. That's mm-hmm. a good question. Mm-hmm. But he, had, he was a Canadian doctor, and he worked also in Detroit. He worked in both sides of the border. Mm-hmm. And he, was, he had gone to the Soviet Union mm-hmm. on some medical tour. Right. And he saw this, and he saw that people were getting medical care for free. And he yeah. said, wow this is what we got to do. And he tried to get this in Canada and he tried to get it in the United States. Uh So he would set up clinics where if you didn't have money, you didn't have to pay. Uh All right. So he, he struggled trying to live and with family and supporting Uh a family and so on. Uh But, uh, and then he had gone to Spain because he had, by that time, become a communist member of the Communist Party of Canada. Mm-hmm. And then he went back to Spain, uh, back to Canada, and he continued his struggle there. And then he said, I have to go somewhere else. Right. And they're building this in in uh, China, and I have to go help build it. Right. And there are lots of uh, negative things people read about Bethune. Some people, you know, his alcoholism or his womanizing or mm-hmm. stuff. But it's a very interesting thing because... He changed when he came. And there's a couple of interesting stories about Bethune. One of them is when he arrives, they are, uh, he meets with Mao. He goes, uh, he's assigned to go with the army. And he goes and he says, I need a hospital. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, no, we can't build a hospital. We can't build a hospital, no. And he says, I need a hospital. He's a very demanding person. Mm. And then they build the hospital and then the hospital is bombed Mm. immediately. Mm. And he said, the hospital. And they said, we knew that would happen. That always happens. He says, why didn't you tell me? They said, you didn't ask. We tried (laughs) to tell you it wouldn't work. Mm. So this kind of humbled him a little bit. Mm. And then there's another story where... He has, uh, he's trying to, he's working on some patients and he has some Chinese barefoot doctor, mm-hmm. right, who's working with him mm-hmm. and the, made some kind of mistake and the person dies. And Bethune is just going crazy and yelling at him and you get out of here I don't ever want to see you again. Mm-hmm. You're terrible. And then later, somebody tells him, you know, he wasn't a doctor. We had no doctors. Mm. And we said, who, who can help? And he knew nothing about medicine. He said, I'll help. Mm. And then there's, um, there's a couple of movies about Bethune. One of them stars Donald Sutherland. And then um, there's a particular scene, the way it talks about Bethune, is at a criticism, self-criticism session. Mm. And he gets up and he apologizes and he said uh, you know it's uh, it's very good that you volunteered to help right and he invited him back and he said he starts off with we're here to fight fascism and the first thing we have to do is we have to fight the fascism within ourselves
0: mm. Mm.
1: Right, so there were major political transformations in him once he arrived in China because the environment for this mm. helped to create him. China had a he made a great contribution to China, but China had an enormous impact on him. Mm. Mm. And um, anyway, so that's Bethune. Bethune. So this Bethune. is part of why Mao wrote this thing, <laughs> memorial for Norman, Doctor Norman Bethune, by Chuen. Thune came to China to join the people's fight. He worked to save the wounded, he kept on day and night. Although he came from Canada, his commitment knew no end. In the terrible strife, he gave his life to people to defend. Learn from the Thune, his spirit we must hail. Selfless devotion will ensure it just cause cannot fail. Bethune, don't let the red flag fall. The international spirit will bring victory for all. Bethune he went to Yan'an in the province of Shanxi. T'was there he joined with Guang Dan, met with Mao Xi. Then with the Route army, after saving comrade's life, Bethune got sick and then he died, with cut from his surgical knife. Learn from is spirit we must hail. Selfless devotions will ensure just cause or not fail. Learn from Bethune's, don't let the red flag fall. The international spirit will bring victory for all. Mm. Sorry about
0: stumbling on it's that. Okay, I haven't sung okay. this in many years. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. sure.
1: All right. Uh, let me try another one of these songs from this group. Um... Let me find the Edgar Snow. Edgar Snow's song is called Their Victory Was Also His Reward. Edgar Snow was a man who came to this ancient land and he showed his pen was mighty like a sword. Every word that he did write helped the peoples fight. And their victory was also his reward. And he met with Mao Juxi, and he heard the whole story of why Chairman Mao knew that they would win. Treat the people with respect, and give what they expect. And they will be stick with you through thick and thin. struggle it was hard for a cause it was so just and the red star over China brightly shine. Snow's fame book explained it well so his readers all could tell that the people and the army were entwined Edgar Snow was a man who came to this ancient land and he showed his Fight. and their victory was also his reward and their victory
0: was also his reward <laughs> so that's edgar snow and this and is edgar snow I,
1: I have this line here it says and the red star over china brightly shines so that has a double meaning right on the one hand it's the book and oh, on the other hand it. it's the red
0: star right i see over so what China. is the Red Star of China about? The book.
1: It's about the uh, the Long March. It's about the fight against Japan. Okay. All right. And particularly, he went to Yan'an, okay, and yes. this is before the. All right. He went to Yan'an, mm-hmm. and uh, which is where that was was the liberated zone. And he interviewed Mao Zedong, and he interviewed Zhou Enlai, and he yeah. interviewed various other leaders, and he tells the stories of these interviews. And he did some, and then after his his wife. Was Helen Foster, whose married name was Helen Foster. Snow. She also wrote a number of things. And Snow had originally gone, and then they decided they were miss. They were living in Beijing, and they decided they were missing some things. Actually, maybe he was living in Shanghai at the time. The I can't remember. There was a time. It was. I'm not sure which one. Uh-huh. Uh, at that time, can't remember. But uh, so she went back. Got some more photographs. Got some more information. Mm. So she generally is not credited for that, but she oh. really deserves equal billing. Mm. I have mm. a song that I started about her, mm-hmm. Helen Foster Snow, but I
0: can't find it. can <laughs> we'll find it. Uh, I so cannot
1: many. find it. Let me do one of the others about one of these uh, one of the other people, Isabel Crook. Let me do that. Yeah, let's one. hear about Isabel Crook. Who you had the good fortune to know sure, at 105 yeah. Yeah. years old. Met
0: her and spoken to her, yes. Lovely Let guy. me
1: see, I need to
0: find this.
1: was born long ago in Sichuan. Some 30 years later, she met David Cook in China, and later they were wed in London. Together, they both worked as teachers, eight the struggle in many ways, as workers and peasants fought for their lives on the road to build a new day. On the road to build a new day. They joined with their Chinese comrades on that road that was often not straight. Unwavering as it got rocky, with commitment that was a Isabel Brown was Canadian. Chair And 30 years later, she met David Cook in China, and later they were wed in London. Together, they both worked as teachers, aiding the struggle in many ways. Peasants and workers fought for their lives on the road to building a day. That's called on the road to build a new day. So, this was uh, relatively recent. And in fact, uh, my singing partner and agent, a young Chinese woman, uh, made a documentary about Isabel called Memories of Bailu Ding. Bailu Ding was, Isabel was growing up as a kid in Sichuan province mm-hmm. and Bailu Ding was this mountain area that was kind of, people would go for vacations yeah. and had swimming and tennis and stuff and her family would hike there. And so Isabel uh, has all of these memories about right. Bailu, Ding. Bailu Ding. So, and then, uh, um, so this song, we included this song in that at the at the end. That song is the music oh. for that.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned Sichuan. Have you been to Sichuan?
1: I've uh, been to uh, Chengdu a couple of times.
0: What do What's this Sichuan? It's quite a famous province.
1: Uh, yeah, I've. Well, it's most famous for pandas. Right, and pandas. I went there. I've been there twice, but both times were very short. Uh-huh. I went to one time. I went to speak at one university. Another uh-huh. time, I went to speak at another university. Uh-huh. You flew so flew in, flew, uh, in, flew uh, oh. the next day, flew out. Next, day, flew out.
0: So I guess Isabel could be another Red Dream Chaser. Isabel
1: right? and her husband David, both of them. Yes. yep They were here before then. the name of this
0: episode, Red Dream Chasers, I, right. I think so. Right.
1: So that's. Uh, let's see. I had another thing. Okay. I have another one here. Sure. This is, how about, to make it, uh, how about, what do you think that he would say?
0: Ah, yes. I like this one. Okay. This. this is a good one. So.
1: As I, Whenever I play this, I always start with if you had a title like that in the West, who would the he refer to? Mm, 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 mm. And most people don't know. And I'd say, of course, it would refer to Jesus.
0: right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd
1: be all capitals, he. I said, but that's not what this song is. So. that he would say if Chairman spark and start a prairie fire. A little bit of motion can take it much higher. Got to take it to the people to build a brand new day. If Chairman Mao were alive today, there is no doubt that he would say, service to the people is a must. To build a brand new world that's righteous and just. If you don't serve say Okay, yeah, I'm sure... You recognize that the Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win. I said at the top, I said Words and Music by Mark Levine with Mm -hmm. the aid of quotations from Chairman Mao. Right.
0: So you've taken bits from from the Red Book.
1: Right. The Little Red Book, Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, A Single Mm -hmm. Spark Can Start a Prairie Fire and Service to the People.
0: Service to the People.
1: All right. So So I have to give Mao equal credit on the song. He wrote some of that there. So it's
0: collaboration, you know. That's right. Made That's by right. you
1: and Malik. <laughs> That's right. I wish he were able to sing it for me. That would be good. I would wish he could hear it too.
0: Hold on. Uh, before we move on, that, that, um, so what do you think he would say?
1: I think those things. Those things. I, I think do those do. things. This is yeah. exactly, you know, the situation hasn't changed,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: People, uh, you know, one of the things that um, I was listening to something the other day um, and the person was talking about how throughout the history of socialism that socialism has never had the opportunity to just grow and develop without tremendous opposition trying to destroy it. Mm. Okay? And as a result, in many instances, people consider it a failure. It was not a failure if it had the opportunity to grow. Then, and besides, one of the examples that I always used to use is, you know how many times the Wright brothers had to fly a plane until it stayed in the air for more than a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes? No a lot. Yeah. All right, a lot. So what happens? The Soviet Union lasted 70 years, right? Approximately. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's pretty good on the one hand. Right. On the other hand, it was the first try. First attempt, right? It was the first try, so you expect that doesn't mean socialism has failed, yeah. right? And in the course of attempting to survive, right, there were problems. I was just listening to a podcast yesterday, and it was talking about uh, it was talking about how the, uh, much of the failure of the Soviet Union can be attributed to President Jimmy Carter mm-hmm. of the United States. Why? Because he hired. Uh, Brzezinski as the Secretary of State, right? And Brzezinski's objective was, and and he had a plan with Jimmy Carter's support, mm-hmm. was to drag the Soviet Union into fighting in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and to keep them there. And then apparently the Soviet Union kept trying to get out and get out and get out. Mm-hmm. And that the U.S. said uh, the U.S. did all kinds of things to make them stay there, mm-hmm. which was... Uh, essentially, very destructive and very damaging, and mm-hmm. so on. So, I think Mao would say, you know, what do you do? You got to do what you got to do.
0: And That's it. So, I mean, obviously, with socialism being built and the Soviet Union being the first attempt, and we're in China now, and you know, we've kind of skirted around this topic slightly. Um, is that you know, socialism in China today? Well, what what is it? According okay, to you? let me have a song. I got a song. <laughs> got a song for that. So this is the Long, Long River. Okay.
1: On the long, long river of Chinese history, been some mystery. It's been blustery with many twists and turns. But sometimes it's flowed so easily, it's even moved peacefully and gives us much to future can be found in the lessons of the past. As the river from the bygone days flows into tomorrow There are many things to understand from what happened long ago And if we grasp these lessons well we can avoid much sorrow On the long, long river of Chinese history there's been some mystery Or it's been blustery With many twists and turns But sometimes it floats so easily It's safe removed move peacefully And gives us much to learn So many people in the past Gave their lives to build A land in which all can be provided. But the privileges of some who care not about the rest can recreate a land that is divided. On the long, long river of Chinese history there's been some mystery or it's been blustery with many twists and turns. Sometimes its float so easily It removed peacefully and gives us much to
0: learn. Sometimes it's float so And that is it for this episode of the Marxist think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.